You're listening to Very Loose Women. Good evening, listeners. You're listening to Very Loose Women on Resonance 104.4 FM. Tonight in the studio, we have Leo Soiler, me, Flory, and um, we're going to be talking about the Grenfell Tower tragedy with Tasha Braid. And first of all, here is a clip of Loki's song, Ghosts of Grenfell. The night our eyes changed. Rooms where love was made and unmade in a flash of the night. Rooms where memories drowned in fumes of poison. Rooms where futures were planned and the imagination of children built castles in the sky. Rooms where both the extraordinary and the mundane were lived, become forever tortured graves of ash. Oh, you political class, so servile to corporate power. Justice, not hear him, not hear him scream. So that was Loki, Ghosts of Grenfell. To give you a little bit of background, listeners, um, the Grenfell Tower fire broke out in June 2017. 72 people were killed and over 70 were injured in a 24-storey public housing block, which is situated in Kensington and Chelsea Borough. Over 250 firefighters, 70 fire engines, 20 ambulances attended the scene. 223 people um, managed to escape. And the public inquiry opened on September the 14th, 2017 and is yet to publish any findings. I just want to say before we head in, we're not like looking at investigating Grenfell in this episode, mm-hmm. but um, we're lucky enough to have a Justice for Grenfell campaigner in the studio with us. But also it's something that we're all Londoners and it's something that primarily affects people in the Grenfell Tower, close to the Grenfell Tower, Um, But also, as Londoners, it was a real wake-up call for a lot of people, I think. I want to introduce Tasha, who's my wonderful cousin, who grew up in the area surrounding Grenfell. Um, We'll be talking about her involvement at a local level in the community and the response to the Grenfell fire. And we'll be asking her about her experience as part of um, the Justice for Grenfell campaign. I just want to say that I'm incredibly proud to have someone doing this work in my family. Um... And I kind of found out in the most incredible way by being forwarded a bit of footage from my uncle, BBC News footage. And I obviously didn't... I thought it was just covering the the events of the tower. And then I kind of, a couple of minutes in, saw Tasha speaking in such a powerful way on TV about it. And it was just an amazing way to find out the work that she's been doing. So I just want to ask you a few questions, Tasha. Cool. Hi. Uh, Thank you for having me, guys. Yeah, so I'm from Labbert Grove. I've grown up in Labbert Grove my whole life. Um, and the morning of the fire, well, the night before the fire, um, me and my boyfriend had a bit of a date night, so I was wrecked. <laughs> I was seriously hungover the next day. And I don't know, I got a message uh, on my phone. I got a few missed calls from my brother, um, and I kind of ignored them. Uh, and then a couple of missed calls from my uncle and I thought oh god something's maybe something's happened to my dad but I kind of still ignored them um being hungover and then got a message from my uncle saying I hope you don't know anyone that lives in that tower 
so I turned on the news and saw this fire happening. Couldn't quite figure out where it was and my head was a bit all over the place. But me and my boyfriend, we jumped up. We just grabbed loads of jackets and jumpers and we bought water and we went down there. And nothing really could prepare you for what you saw when you got down to the tower that early hours of that morning. So who was there already? There were there were lots of people. Um, there were residents of the tower. There were members of the community the police were there the fire brigade were there and that's about it and a lot of news reporters a lot of journalists a lot of camera crew from all over the world um but other than that no kind of other authority was there at that particular in the first few days anyway um i wanted to kind of find out how these um groups supporting um the families formed and were there any groups there? Were they forming on the day? How do people organise? It was really interesting, actually. Um, I think within a couple of hours of me arriving, suddenly vans started arriving with donations and people with bags and bottles of water. And uh, there were, you know, we had Sainsbury's vans turning up and they were donating food. And you had the local Sikh community coming down and they were making food for volunteers. You had, you even had the Scientologists down there with their van and <laughs> donating foods and everything. But in the first few days, it was just people helping people. And it was just everyone. I think I think what we forget being human is actually our natural instinct is to help others. Mm -hmm. And that was that really was apparent um, in the weeks following the fire. And even today, people just came out and did what they could. People came as far as Cardiff. You know, you had people from Scotland and all over the country just coming down to give what they could and to give their time and their support. And I think that was really incredible. Um, groups started to form within kind of weeks and months following the fire. And I think it took actually a few months for the core groups surrounding Grenfell to form. So there are a few groups. Um, Justice for Grenfell, we're not a bereaved or survivors group we don't try to represent them in any way but we are a community-led organization who are going to campaign for justice for as long as it takes what does that mean in terms of so justice? justice looks different to different people i guess um for us it's prosecutions we want someone to go down 72 people died and someone needs to be prosecuted for that um, if it was me or any of you three who were, had any hand in that fire, we would be on bail or we'd be sitting in a jail cell right now. But it's it's a system that we're up against. So, um, yeah, so justice for us is prosecutions and making sure it never happens again. Justice for women is a... Justice for women. Justice for Grenfell. We do need a justice for women yeah. as well. Um, but justice for Grenfell is an all-women's group. Um, is there a reason for that? Or I think that just happened naturally, to be honest. Um, it started, it, uh, when Justice for Grenfell came about, it was uh, set up five days after the fire. And it was set up actually with a gentleman called Ishmael uh, Blagrove. Mm -hmm. And he has now stepped away from the campaign. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's happened so naturally that we're just women doing this and um, we're not excluding any males we do need some testosterone in the office sometimes um but i think we are i mean we i think we look at things in a different way um less kind of the men might do not all men just some men yeah. um 
but yeah, it's just it's just all happened so naturally, and we're I'm the youngest of Justice for Grenfell. Uh, the other ladies are a bit older than me. They've got kids or grandkids, yeah. and so everyone's got their own lives. But it kind of just works the way it is. And I think um, actually, I think being an all woman core team is an advantage for us. In what way? Just in the way that we kind of, we understand how each other work as women. Um, also, we're because a lot of the community that we're dealing with are Muslim, you can kind of approach Muslim women and speak to Muslim women and speak what, uh, understand what they're kind of going through in a different way than perhaps a man could. Um, yeah, I, I so unintentional, but it's kind of, yeah, our little secret advantage that we've got going on. There was something when, when Flory told me that earlier that Justice for Grandpa was... Um women by coincidence it made me think immediately of what I had read I got quite into reading around the cladding and you know as many people had it was predominantly what stuck in my head was sort of middle-aged white males Um, and it seems like these are the people who are not part of the community organizing around it and it I mean it's not particularly a question but it did seem like quite a stark uh, contrast to me I think in boardrooms generally, and this is across the board in any industry, it is the middle-aged white male, middle-class to upper-class male that are making the decisions. Um, And if that changed, if we had a diverse group at the top, then maybe some of these decisions wouldn't be made. If we had people at the top who were living in social housing, maybe the idea of putting flammable cladding on a building wouldn't be so... Um, <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't happen. Wouldn't happen. Yeah. That's one of the things thing that Justice for Grenfell is calling for, isn't it? A diverse inquiry panel. Yeah. So it's the bereaved and the survivors have asked for a diverse decision making panel alongside the judge on the inquiry. Um, and I mean, the most important thing is that they have dis- the same decision making powers as the judge. But what we have is an uh, inquiry that's run by one man who happens to be a white man of a certain class and of a certain age. And when we in the community look at him, we don't see ourselves. Mm. And you need to have a representative inquiry for the very people that the inquiry is supposed to serve, which are the people who lived in the tower, which are the people who lost their homes and their families. And... I don't think it's a big ask. There have been other public inquiries in which they have got um, a diverse or kind of a panel rather than just one person. But we're kind of we're wondering, you know, how can uh, one man make a decision on social housing if he's never lived in social housing? How can he understand a community that is so diverse that has Afro-Caribbean and Muslim um, members of the community if he's never been in direct contact with those kind of people? Um so that's why it's important. And I think actually the inquiry must, it must make these changes and it must be representative of the people it's supposed to serve. Otherwise, it's an injustice. I was wondering, what are those tasks that you're carrying out day to day and who is coming to you for help still? And what does that look like? So I guess we're, um, we have one day where we all try to be in the office, but we've, I mean, most of us have other jobs as well. So I do two other um, jobs to get paid. Um, so we have one kind of day where we sit down and we meet and we go through everything that the week's kind of thrown at us. Um, but it's answering emails, doing 
a hell of a lot of press, um, doing a lot of interviews, getting back to students who are doing their dissertations, writing press releases, uploading stuff on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, and just trying to keep everything in the public eye because once the story dies, then there's no chance of getting to the truth because people lose interest. And that's not uh, because people don't care, but we all have been kind of conditioned to have these short attention spans where we jump onto the next thing and we just can't let that happen with this. You know, this is the worst fire since World War II. So we need someone to be held accountable for this. And we need someone to be held accountable for the other hundreds of buildings around the UK that are covered in flammable cladding and that no one's done anything about. Um, so how, how, what does that look like for you in terms of how you how you... There are no more pictures for the media to put into television screens because they wanted a building up in flames. They, you know, this gets prime time broadcast. Um, how are you keeping, making sure that it's on the bulletins? I think uh, by going about it in a different way. So, for example, now we're working with potential. Uh, we're working with, for example, like. Uh, photo story journalists who are telling the story of our community because our community has been painted in kind of a different light to the community that I live in and that I've grown up in. We are, you know, we're diverse. We care for one another. We've got a huge history in Labrick Grove of all these, you know, tribulations and overcoming things and a lot of race relations. The worst race riots in the UK happened in Labrick Grove. So we've got a huge history of all of this stuff and just being clever, clever about it now we have to think outside the box a bit who we're going to give our time and our information to um, and what story they're going to tell because we've also been you know you have the um, downsides to the press as well and they'll tell the story that they think is important when in actual fact it's not reflective of the people that we are or the community that we live in or actually what happened um, on that night. And we have these incredible documentaries coming out at the moment, but they're telling a story. Some of them are telling a story that leads into illegal immigration and um, stuff like that. And it's just, that's not the story. That's not why we're here today. We're here today because 72 people burnt to death in their homes. So there were big billboards that really caught the attention. That's a, that's a way that you sort of continued momentum. I was wondering how that came about. So we'd seen the film. We loved the idea of the billboards, but it's something that we couldn't, as a campaign, A, we couldn't finance it. We didn't have the resources to do any, ever do anything like that. And then we were really lucky to be approached by an advertising agency who wanted to take the idea forward with us. And they put in, they financed it, they um, kind of looked at the logistics of everything and made it happen. And it was a really, I mean, it's a really strong campaign. It's one of, you know, one of the my proudest moments, as it were, if I can call it that. But um, it was, yeah, it brought the story back into the public eye and it made everyone remember that this has happened, no one's been arrested. And here we are, I mean... 10 months down the line and still nothing's been done so with the billboards we weren't it they said 71 dead and still no arrests how come we weren't calling for arrests that day we were basically as i said to you guys if it was any of us that had any hand in that fire we would have been questioned we would be on remand um, and that just hadn't happened we want a full and thorough investigation into this they're saying that it may the criminal investigation might not be complete now until may 2019 mm. that's a long time to wait and that's a long time to cover stuff up as well
could you tell us a little bit just about this film? The film is pretty great. Um, there's a lot of swearing, which I love, and she's this strong woman who doesn't take any from anyone. But she's a mother who's lost her child. Her daughter was raped and murdered, and the police in her local town kind of weren't finding any suspects and the case wasn't moving forward so for her she thought what can I do I'm going to buy these billboards and I'm going to paint them and she painted 70 sorry not she didn't paint that she painted um raped while being murdered and still no arrests how come chief Willoughby something to that effect Mm -hmm. um and I mean the ending of the film isn't when you see it, it's not quite the way we hope <laughs> our story will go. But it is about a strong female who's fighting for what she believes in, fighting for what she loves and who she loves. And, yeah, she doesn't take anything from anyone. And that's who we are. We're not taking anything from anyone anymore. <laughs> but this kind of looped around and it got back. Um, how did that work out? And were you expecting it? Oh, so for, for listeners, um, Frances McDormand, who is yeah. in this uh, Three Billboards film, uh, found out about the sort of impact that that narrative had on the Justice for Grandpa campaign and the fact that this billboard then appeared in London in real life, not in film, um, and then mentioned, uh, referenced this um, at, at the BAFTAs in London. Yeah, it, it's just, it, I guess it's something, someone from another world. I, I wouldn't ever imagine Frances McDormand talking about Grenfell and yet it happened. I think that was the, that was a really pivotal moment for us as well. I think, um, you know, Frances McDormand, she mentioned it in her interviews. Martin McDonough, who um, directed the film, he spoke about it on the BAFTA red carpet. And just, f- we wanted to do a piece that was like, as quoting Frances McDormand, a piece of civil disobedience, and that's what it was. And it's we're in 2018, we've got to think outside the box. We have to think in ways that are going to be impactful, but are within the law. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was incredible that she'd mentioned the campaign, but it was more incredible that they knew and and our piece of protest meant something to them as well yeah, because they've made this film attention. exactly yeah. and that um they were happy that we had done that you know you don't want to take someone's art and replicate it and them hate it that's not what you want but at the end of the day i think they got the story that we were trying to tell and then after us it happened in kosovo it happened in miami with the gun control it happened in new york and it just kind of spiraled and that's so great that people are you know using these billboards as a piece of protest that's amazing i didn't know that they had rippled as well and other people were doing it that's great really great there have been any other highlights that you want to share? This whole kind of thing hasn't been much of a journey that has many highlights, to be honest. I'd say that Stormzy helped us out massively. Um, the bereaved and the survivors put forward a petition last year in which they called for this diverse decision-making panel and that petition sat on around 30,000 um, signatures and then Stormzy did the Brits... And after the Brits, he um, tweeted that petition and it went to 160,000. His performance is incredible. Oh, my God, it made me cry. It was really good. So, 
Yeah, so that was, I mean, that was pretty amazing. And I think that's, you know, I think our celebrities out there do have a responsibility to use their voices and use their power that they have because at the end of the day, we're all human and it could have happened to absolutely, it could have happened to any of us. So using your voice, I think that's the most important thing as well. And for me, personally, highlights, I mean, I've I'd never... T- publicly spoke I'd never done a interview not that a tv interview not that I love them but you know it's given me confidence to go ahead and do that and just to also just it's pushed I don't know it's pushed something within me this whole experience I don't I work as a celebrity PA as my normal job um this has given me something else something a lot more meaningful and something that I really care about and um I think it will change the direction and the course of my journey from here on out. I know it's not part of the, well, I assume it's not part of the Justice for Grenfell campaign, but a lot of the people who were, who survived uh, the fire um, are still waiting to be rehoused. Is that something that you take on board? Um, it's something that we'll write about. It's something that we are constantly pushing. We're really trying to speed up this rehousing process. Theresa May, when the fire um, happened, said that everyone would be rehoused within three weeks and now we're 10 months down the line. And according to last week's numbers, um, we still have 78 households in emergency accommodation. So that's a lot of children. Um, and it's actually illegal for children to be in emergency accommodation for more than six weeks. So we're worried about these kids and we're worried about toddlers who are trying to crawl in a hotel room with five other family members around or kids who are looking towards their GCSEs and have to try and study in this small space who haven't been able to cook a meal in 10 months. So that is a huge priority for us. Everyone, I mean, it's it's taken a long time. And even those who have moved into accommodation, um, out of the 133 households that have moved into accommoda- um, accommodation, 67 of those households are in temporary accommodation. So they're still not, they don't have anywhere permanent to live. So you're talking about, you know, they're talking about over 100 households who are homeless, basically. So it's hugely important to us. Um, and we're doing what we can, but you can't speed up something you have no control over you can just keep talking about it is the silent marches that have been happening in west london are they part of justice for grenfell how did they come about and could you just explain a bit about so we set up the first silent march um and that took place a few days after the fire and we would start walking from the Methodist church and we'd walk Labbott Grove and we'd go round. So it took about half an hour to 40 minutes. Um, we've changed that march now. So we march from Kensington Chelsea Town Hall on the 14th of every month. We meet at 5.30. Um, we march at 6 and we walk along High Street Ken, uh, back past Holland Park and then down to Grenfell that way and it's a really really powerful march I mean if anyone has the opportunity do come along um we have the the firefighters come out every single month and they stand to attention and they put their helmets by their feet and they're there every every month and that's really important to us as well we've got a crazy beautiful relationship with our fire service now um and you know we just pop in for cups of tea and bring them cupcakes and they're our friends you know and um I think they they've got to be applauded in all this there was there's only so much you can do with what 
with little resources you have, and they did extremely well. And what other stuff is the campaign focusing on at the moment? So we are, it's nearly, I mean, in two months' time, it will be the year anniversary. Um, So we've got a few plans for that, uh, which I'm sure you can check out on our website, what we're planning to do. What's the, while we're here, what's the website? It's uh, www.justice4grenfell.org. And we're also looking towards the inquiry, which will restart on the 21st of May. That's the provisional date. Um, The debate for the petition will be debated on the 14th of May, which is only a week before, which kind of gives us an answer in terms of whether they're going to grant this diverse panel or not because it's only a week from the debate date to the start of the inquiry. Um, But, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we're doing and then campaigning we're up and down the country we're going to i'm going to liverpool next month we've been to dublin york manchester liverpool everywhere we're just all over the place there's always one of us who's not in london um talking and just keeping the story going making people know that you know there are still so much suffering going on and it just because the building stopped burning after 60 hours doesn't mean that People aren't still struggling every single day. The You've talked about a bit the international repercussions in terms of the billboards, but also it seems like this is also a story that has resonated a lot abroad and not just in rich, very wealthy countries and communities, but also this is a sort of an occurrence that happens across the board and it kind of shows, I don't know, to me that uh, the UK... Uh, is not you know it's it's not it's not putting its money in safe housing um and and it's you know a, a lot of a lot of communities are affected by this have have any of these tried to reach out to you or well, i think um you just have to kind of look at for some reason it does feel and i don't know if it's the truth but fire has been a lot more reported since the grenfell tower whether that's worldwide or in the uk um, you just have to kind of look at the kind of fires that are happening as well. And, for example, we had one uh, about three weeks ago in Russia, this awful fire in the shopping centre, you know. And there's different aspects to every single fire that happens. So, obviously, our big thing in, with Grenfell was the cladding and the fact there was only one fire exit, um, fire stairwell. There was no fire lighting. There were no sprinklers. There were no s- internal smoke alarms. But with, for example, that one in Russia, you've got, you know, the kids went into a cinema and to stop gate crashes coming into the cinema, they locked the door, which meant that the kids in the cinema didn't get out. For the fire that happened in Trump Tower the other day, I think they were there was some talk about sprinklers and I'm not entirely sure, so I don't want to be... Um, get anything wrong with that but there's it happens in japan and in japan you've got these tiny cramped living spaces and if a fire breaks out in one of those that's a potential to kill hundreds of people so i think fire safety as a whole needs to be looked at um we've had an incredible kind of support from all over the world from all over the world and we still have it today we have people today we had a newspaper sent to us from japan someone had said you know oh your billboards are here and um we have uh, someone that made us a song from france we have mm-hmm. people in america saying i don't know how this could happen because actually fire control in america is a lot different to here and they have fire exits on the side of the buildings mm-hmm. and they have internal sprinklers and stuff like that in high rises um but yeah i think everyone 
uh, who knows about Granfall has it's kind of touched them in their own way, and they can understand that it just it happened to just a group of people, and it could be anyone anywhere. Um, so we just need to yeah stop with the cladding and more fire safety stuff mm. please we're going to end on that note um, but thank you very much for listening um, I want to thank Tasha for being our guest today and for just telling us your story and the work you're doing it's um, incredibly harrowing to hear about what happened but encouraging to see your progress um, if our listeners did want to get involved in any way or to, to have a look at what you're doing how can they do that uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram. Our um, handle is at officialj4g. That's the number four. Um, website is www.justiceforgrenfell.org and we're on uh, Facebook as well, Justice, then the number four, Grenfell. Amazing. In terms of um, donations, are you taking financial donations? Um, are any sort of... Uh, do people still want coats and things or is that just an aftermath thing? What, how was that looking like? I would maybe say, yeah, not not so many physical donations like clothing. Um, I think they... Apparently all the donations came to something like six football fields. So there's a lot yeah. of stuff and a lot of stuff they've resold or they've given away um, because it's just too much stuff. But in terms of the community, there are... Um, for example, youth groups you can donate to. You can donate to our campaign, towards our running costs, um, and you can do that on our website. Amazing. Um, um, thank you very much, Flory, for kind of taking on um, today's episode of Very Loose Women. So this has been Very Loose Women. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at VLW Radio. We are Very Loose Women on Facebook. You can listen to previous episodes of Very Loose Women on acast.com forward slash Very Loose Women or on iTunes podcast. So um, do listen there. Um, thank you very much um, once again, Tasha. Thank you, Flory. Thank you, Leo. You're welcome, as ever. <laughs> Thank you. No problem. I don't know why I said no problem. But you can take that out. That's a bit Thank weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely leaving that in. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs>